Well, welcome. So glad that you're here with us today. I am Jeremy, one of the pastors here. And if you're newer to Shelter Cove, we want to just say we're so glad that you're here with us today. If you have a Bible, would you please open it to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. One of the ushers will get one to you in just a moment. Do want to welcome those joining us online. So glad that you're tuning in with us today. We're in a eight-week series on the book of 1 John, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the impact of light and love. And it's amazing what happens when we live as light and live out love. Uh, God will radically impact not only our own lives, but the people around us. Uh, Chad did a great job last weekend looking at the uh, reality of walking in the light. And today we're looking at fellowship with God. And before we dive into the scripture, just want to say this. Uh, so many of you know already from the news, uh, Santa Rosa, Napa, there are so many people right now that have lost homes. Uh, they've lost everything. So what we've decided to do as a church is we're going to open up our church as a citywide drop-off center. That means if you know anybody that wants to get stuff to the Santa Rosa area, they can bring it here this coming week. We're going to have more details online, social media. You can bring it here, and we will make sure it gets there and gets distributed to people that are in need. And I just want to thank you in advance for, for again, being lights um, during this difficult season. Right now, we want to read the Word of God and ask that God would speak to our lives. Would you stand right now as we honor the reading of God's word. 1 John, chapter 2. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Heavenly Father, God, for those that have lost everything over the last week, for those that are hurting, for those that are confused because of the fires, God, would you allow them to experience the healing and hope that's only found in Jesus? And right now, God, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds, that you would speak to us, change us, Inspire us to live lives that are godly. God, I humbly ask that you would take over my mouth, my mind, and my heart. And that you would communicate the message you have in store for us today. God, you are a rock. and You are a redeemer. Have your way in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite restaurants is In-N-Out Burger. And yes, I just called it a restaurant. And coming from somebody that's eaten at In-N-Out dozens and dozens and dozens of times, if you were to ask me the top five characteristics of that amazing restaurant, 
here's what I would say. Number one, In-N-Out Burger always has fresh food. In fact, they are chopping up and cutting up their French fries um, minutes before they fry them and serve them to you. They are fresh. Their produce is fresh. Second of all, I would say that it is consistently good food. It doesn't matter what In-N-Out you go to. The food is always good. This is getting kind of weird because some of you are starting to drool right now, all right? <laughs> Thirdly, I would say that a great uh, characteristic is that they have this secret menu. Oh, how many of you know about the secret menu? Yes, some of you. I just realized on the secret menu, you could get little chilies chopped up and put on your burger. So if you didn't know that, order a burger for somebody else and get chilies chopped up on their burger, all right? Uh, fourthly, I would say that they've got hard workers. Consistently hard workers. And number five, I would say that their drive-through is always busy. It doesn't matter what time you go, there is always someone in that drive-through. And I love my friends that have lived in California for years, and they move out of state, and they come back. And one of the things that you ask them is, hey, what you guys do? And they're like, we've been here four days, and we've already been to In-N-Out Burger 17 times, right? <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. They, they just love it. Um, and most people do. Does anybody not like In-N-Out Burger? You can be, be honest. That's okay. A few of you? Good. Repent. We will pray for you. <laughs> Um, I think somewhere in God's Word, I think it's like Second Hesitations, chapter four, it says something about In-N-Out Burger. But this is coming from somebody that 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 knows In-N-Out Burger really well, right? Today in our passage, we're we're hearing from a man who knew Jesus really, really well, and he's going to walk through us. Five characteristics of this intimate walk with God. This close, this authentic, this real, this growing. Here's, here's a man that in his gospel of John, he constantly referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. Yep, that's me, holler, right? That was John. He was confident in his relationship with Jesus. He knew Jesus. That's what makes these words from God today so powerful. This is a message that you could save for the rest of your life and keep going back to time and time again because these are never-ending truths. Five characteristics of what it means, what it looks like to have this intimate walk with God. Number one is this. It's godly hope. It's godly hope. John opens by writing. He says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Why did he write that? Because back in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, John talks about his desire for us to not just be in relationship with God, but to have fellowship with God. This healthy, growing fellowship with God and this fellowship with Jesus Christ. He says, it's in that time that you've got joy. It's in that time that you're radically fulfilled. And if there's one thing that's gonna kill the joy in our lives, kill the fellowship in our lives, it's sin. Sin always kills joy. Sin always kills joy. So here from the very beginning, 
He's writing about this godly hope, and he says, we have an advocate. And I love this because here's John. He's in his 80s or 90s. He's at the end of his life. He's spiritually mature, and he doesn't just say, you've got an advocate. He says, we have an advocate. Because as spiritual as John was, he knew the reality for his life was that he would still at times give into the flesh. But he says we have this godly hope. It's this godly confidence. It's this confidence in God. And it's demonstrated in two different ways in this text. First of all, John says that when we sin, we have an advocate in heaven. We have an advocate in heaven. I love this word advocate. It's transliterated paracletes. It literally means to come alongside. It's a helper. It has this courtroom language where it's, it's our defender. And John's writing that when we do sin, we've got an advocate who's Jesus who is defending us. So every time that Satan is accusing us, of sin and rebellion, and he says guilty, Jesus is there standing in front of our Heavenly Father saying, yes, Satan's right, they are guilty, but I've already taken the punishment upon myself. I've already died in their place. So when Christ sees us, when God sees us, he doesn't see our own sin, he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ. Why? Because we have an advocate who is always next to the Father. Jesus doesn't take time off. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't go on vacation. He is constantly defending us. Why? Because he's our defender. Second of all, John puts it this way. He says that Jesus has paid our penalty. Jesus has paid our penalty. Now, the difference between pagan and biblical concepts is that in the Bible, it never mentions that man takes the initiative to satisfy God. God has taken the initiative. God has taken the initiative to satisfy his own wrath in his son and reconcile us back to him. That's what propitiation is, is that God's taken the initiative to satisfy his own wrath and reconcile us back to him. Now, this is different from every other religion. Every other religion is based upon works. You see those two guys most of the time riding their bikes in white shirts? Those are Mormons. They do that because they have to. Why? Because their religion is based upon works. Jehovah Witnesses, based upon works. What we do to be right with God. Christianity is not based upon works. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Huge difference. Why? Because our good works are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. So we've got this <clears throat> advocate, the Father, and not only that, Jesus has paid our penalty. Every single morning before I go and drop the kids off at school, Hallie will say, Mom, are you picking me up today? Hallie uh, gets picked up by Kelly. Kelly walks over there. We live pretty close to the school. And Kelly says, yes, I'll be there. Every single morning, Mom, you're going to pick me up. Mom, you're going to pick me up. Mom, you're going to pick me up. Yes, yes, yes. She doesn't ask me to pick Hallie up because when I'm asked, I actually forget about her in a whole other story. Not really. Um, but Kelly probably doesn't ask me because I would forget. Hallie wants to be confident that no matter what happens, Mom's going to be there. 
John wants us to know in this passage that we've got this godly hope, that we've got this confidence, that when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness, past, present, and future sin forgiven, that we can be confident that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our defender. He took our sin upon himself on the cross that we could experience life life to the full. It's a godly hope. Second of all, characteristic number two is godly obedience. Godly obedience. Now, while John is writing this, he most likely has his gospels in mind. In John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He said a little bit later, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He says a chapter later in John 15, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, when, when Jesus shares his commandments, they're not just words of a therapist. They're not just random thoughts or ideas. This is God in the flesh who demands our obedience. And John in this passage is saying that godly obedience is a characteristic of this intimate, growing, healthy relationship with God. Now we need to be careful because partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I want to say that one more time. Partial obedience, just doing some of what God wants you to do is disobedience. Delayed obedience, saying, God, I know you're calling me in this direction. God, I know your word says that I will do it eventually. That is disobedience. And John's going to break down the truth about obedience in three different ways. First of all, obedience reveals our eternal life. Obedience reveals that we're right with God. That's what it shows. That's what it communicates. No, we cannot earn our salvation. But our obedience, our submission, reflects that we do have eternal life. It was put this way in John 17, 3. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus said, this this is eternal life, that, that they would know you. And if there's one thing so many Christians get wrong in our culture and in our society is this understanding of what it means to know God. Don't miss this. There are so many people that know about God, but they don't know God. They know what the scripture says. They know what God requires, but they don't truly know God. To know God is to be obedient to God. It's to walk in this fellowship with God. I could tell you that I know Steph Curry. And you guys would be like, hook a brother up, get me some tickets, right? Um, From the Golden State Warriors. But the truth is, I don't know Steph Curry. I know about Steph Curry. There are several people on Facebook that you know about, but you don't actually know. There are thousands and thousands of people that go to church every weekend that say they know God. But the reality is, is they don't know God. They know about God because they're walking in disobedience. John says it reveals that we have eternal life. 
And second of all, he said it leads to intimacy with Christ. Leads to intimacy with Christ. No one can really love God without first experiencing his love. Excuse me. Perfected in us means brought to maturity. It's fulfilled its mission. It's reached its goal. It's this intimacy with Christ. And if there's something that destroys intimacy with Christ, it's disobedience. There were several times growing up, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but where I was um, disobedient to my father. And during those times, um, my relationship with my father never changed. He was always my loving father. But something that was hurt, something that was hindered was our fellowship. It was times of disobedience, and it wasn't until I repented and got right with God and, or my father and, and restored that, that I experienced this intimacy again with my father. But that's what disobedience does. Why? Because obedience leads to intimacy with Christ. Thirdly, obedience is living like Jesus. John clearly says that if we are in obedience, we're going to walk as Jesus walked. What does that mean? Our life, our footsteps, our direction, our desires are going to mimic and model the life of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to live a life of obedience, where it's not about what we want. It's not about what we desire. We're just desiring more of Jesus. And John very clearly says, hey, somebody that does this, they're going to be abiding. They're going to be remaining. They're going to be steadfast in the word of God, in God, even in the midst of life that's tough. They're going to be hanging in there. Why? Because the first mark of this mature walk with God it's godly hope. The second characteristic is godly obedience. Thirdly, is godly love. And this is the way that John pens it in verse 7. He says, <clears throat> Behold, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandments, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What does John want us to know? He wants us to know a couple things. Number one, love is the greatest mark of a Christian. Love is the greatest mark of a Christian. And this is what John says. He says, it's not new but old, but it's new. Why was it old? Because multiple times in the Old Testament, John reveals that this was an old commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Leviticus, Moses said that we're to love one another. This is a commandment that's been around for 1,400 years when it was written, but it's also new. Why? Because Jesus said it was new. 
Jesus put it this way in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And you also ought to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says the mark of a disciple is somebody that loves others. He says this is how the world, this is how everybody else is going to know. It's not by being nice. It's not by being kind. It's not all these other things. He's saying love. Love is the greatest mark. Now, why is it new? It's because of Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus Christ modeled. He modeled this new depth of love that have, that's never been demonstrated before Jesus came. His death on the cross demonstrated what true love really looks like. It's new in its width. It's a wide love because Jesus told us to love all people. The story of the Good Samaritan, the story of loving our enemies. It is wide in its love. But not only that, it's new in its emphasis. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? <clears throat> and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Summarizing 613 from the Old Testament. It's this godly love. It's true in him, and it's also true in us. Why? Because we've got Jesus Christ in our lives. But John doesn't stop there. He goes on and says that love reveals light, while hate reveals darkness. Love reveals light, while hate reveals darkness. John is black and white here. John's saying that you're either going to be somebody that loves people or hates people. I want to say that one more time. Your life will either be summarized as someone who loves people or hates people. When you love people, regardless of how they treat you, you're walking in the light. When you hate people, regardless of how they've treated you, you are walking in darkness. And he says that the person that's walking in the light, he's not gonna stumble himself because he's got the word of God illuminating his path, but he's not gonna cause other people to stumble because he's walking in love. He goes on and says the person that's walking in darkness continually, where it shows that the, the pattern of your life, the summary of your life is hatred towards others. It shows that you have not been saved, that you truly do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so John's talking about this need to love people. Characteristic number one is a godly hope. Characteristic number two is godly obedience. Characteristic number three is godly love. Characteristic number four <clears throat> is godly growth. Godly growth. And this is what John goes on to write in verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him 
who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Godly growth is one of the greatest dangers that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is that we would come to know Jesus, that we would realize that we're saved and for lengthy seasons of our life or the rest of our life, we'd get to a point in our life where we're just like, I'm good. God, I'm good with where I'm at with you. I've got fire insurance. Some of you just got that. I got my get out of hell free card. I'm just going to coast. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, John puts it this way in your notes. He says, we grow and develop throughout each stage of life. Throughout each stage of life. Our passion, our desire as followers of Jesus should be to constantly be growing in our faith, constantly be growing in our love, constantly be growing in our in our walk with God, we should never get to a point in our lives where we say, you know what, I'm, I'm good. We just stop growing where there's no growth. I talked to a lady a couple years ago. Goes to our church in her, in her 70s. She said, Jeremy, I'm growing. I'm growing in my love for Jesus. I've grown more in the last two months than I have in any season of my life. And I just thought, that's, that's amazing. Because so often we get to a point in our lives where we're just like, I'm just good, I'm, I'm coasting. But she said, no, I, I just, I'm realizing the grace of God, I'm realizing the mercy of God, and I just want to keep growing. See, what we've done as a culture, as a, as a church in the United States, is we have begun to normalize something that is not normal. And here's what I mean by that. So we bring the children up here for family dedications. If we had infant after infant after infant up here and they all look like infants, then I introduced one that looked like an infant, but I said this, this, this person's 17 years old and they look like an infant. You maybe wouldn't say it out loud, but in your heart you would say something's wrong because they haven't grown. They haven't matured. <clears throat> That's the reality for so many Christians in America. Is we're the same place we were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, and we begin to just say that's normal. We've normalized something that should not be normal. And John in his passage is saying there's different stages of life. First of all, he says there's little children. He says, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, and because you know the Father, these are infant-like Christians. They know they've been saved. They know the Father. It doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, you know, the next stage of your spiritual journey is to be like young men. What are young men? They have overcome the evil one. He says that two different times. They understand what it means and looks like to fight for their faith. They understand that they are in a spiritual war. They're experiencing victory after victory after victory, but it doesn't stop there. 
<clears throat> excuse me for my voice. I'm going through puberty. Um, it's not just little children. It's not just young men. He says that there's, there's fathers. What is he talking about? He's talking about somebody that's mature in their faith. He's talking about somebody that, that knows God, that's known God from the beginning. And so John says that one of the greatest marks of somebody that's mature in their walk with God is that there is godly growth where there's this hunger, there's this desire, and you may say, how do I do that? Pray. Pray and watch what God does. Pray, God, would you make me hungry? Would you make me thirsty? God, I want to grow. And he'll give you opportunities. He'll put people in your life that are hard to love. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Characteristic number four is godly growth. Characteristic number five, and John ends with this in this section, is godly discipline. Godly discipline. John puts it this way in these three profound verses. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I love the simplicity of John. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John is saying that there needs to be this godly discipline. Now this word for world is, is cosmos. Uh, it's used over 185 times in the New Testament. It's used for the created, ordered world that, that God created. But it's also used to talk about the evil and wicked just world of Satan. In fact, John describes it this way in 1 John 5, 19. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 2. He said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Well, how do we know if we're being conformed? Three different ways, and John breaks this down. Number one is the lust or to the desires of the flesh. What is that? It's wanting what you want instead of what God wants. The flesh refers to our sinful, unforgiven nature, that nature that's in rebellion to God. Second of all, it's, it's the lust of the eyes. It's constantly wanting what other people have. It's what causes jealousy. It's what causes envy. It's what causes coveting. It's constantly wanting more and loving the stuff of this world. Now, let me just be clear. There is nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with having a house, <clears throat> having a car, having clothes, what John says becomes a problem is when you love it. Why? That's idolatry. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, focused on what we don't have. And then he drops a doozy, the pride of life. <clears throat> That's focused on what we do have. It's when we're taking credit for our own accomplishments. It's when we think that everything we have 
is because we've earned it or deserve it. And here's what it says in verse 16 of the New Living Translation. The world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and accomplishments. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. In your notes, we love the eternal and we avoid the temporary. We love the eternal and we avoid the temporary. John ends in verse 17 and says, the world is passing away along with its desires. In other words, you can accumulate as much stuff as you possibly want, but you can't take anything of it with you. It's all going to pass away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God. Five characteristics of an intimate walk with God. Number one is godly hope. Two is godly obedience. Three is godly love. Four is godly growth. And number five is godly desires. In your notes, a final question. Where do you need to allow God to work? Where do you need to allow God to work? For some of you today, it's God, I I need you to change my desires. Because I'm desiring too much worldly stuff. For some of us, We've been in the same place in our walk with God year after year, month after month for so long. When you say, God, would you, would you come in and help me grow? For some of us, we only love people that love us. That's not biblical love. For some of us, our definition of obedience is a buffet meal. We pick and choose the areas of scripture that we want to obey. That's not biblical obedience. And yet for some of us that are here today, our hope before today was putting ourself, was putting what we could do for God instead of saying, you know what, God, today, I want my hope, I want my confidence to be in the one that will never let me down. And his name is Jesus. Let's bow and let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for for the way that you work. God, the easy thing to do today would be to just go through the motions of this prayer and, and leave here unchanged. But God, we want you to work. God, where we need to grow in our obedience, would you help us? God, where we need to grow in our love, would you, would you work in our hearts? God, some of us really need to grow. So would you help us understand what it means to take some steps of faith? God, for others of us, would you just change our desires? Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And you don't have this godly hope. If you were asked where you would spend eternity today, you you really don't know. And I want you to be able to be sure of that today with all heads bowed, nobody looking around.
But if you're here today and you realize for the first time how much you need Jesus, that our sin leads to death, separation from God in a place called hell, and the only way to heaven, to have access to our Heavenly Father is through Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place for our sins. And you just want, you want to know that you're saved. You can do that through a simple prayer. It's not the words of the prayer. It's the attitude of your heart. It goes something like this. Dear Jesus, I need you. Come into my life today and rescue me from my sin. I surrender to you. Take control of my life. I want the rest of my life to be the best of my life. Have your way in my life today. With all heads bowed, nobody looking around. But if that's the desire of your heart right now, would you just lift up your hand and look at me so I can pray for you? You say, I want Jesus. Good. Is there anyone else? Good. Anyone else? See that hand. Good. I see that hand. I see that hand. Is there anybody else? Raise your hand real high and look at me. Good. I see that hand. Is there anyone else? Good. I see that hand. Good. Those two hands over there as well. Good, that hand, those hands. Is there anyone else? You say, I need Jesus today. I want my hope and confidence to be in Jesus. God, thank you so much for the hands that were raised. Would you strengthen my brothers and sisters in ways that only you can? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.